Father, we praise you for King Jesus. I'm not over that, Lord. Thank you that we have a king. He's strong and mighty and in control. He's not worried at all. Not worried at all. Lord, I pray that in this year where, uh, Father, we, we already feel the, the dissension, the division. We feel the bitterness of politics and partisanship. Lord, I pray that you would calm our hearts in the truth that Jesus is still on the throne, Lord. And he will rule and reign forever. And no one, no one will thwart his plan. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Father, we thank you for the kingdom work that Christ is doing in this community. I thank you for Pastor Dean, the family of believers at First Baptist Coco. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing there. Lord, it's an encouragement to us to see your spirit moving among your people. And I pray today you would fill uh, my friend, my brother in Christ, Pastor Dean, with the power of your Holy Spirit to teach your people the word of God. Lord, I pray that you'd renew them and excite them to live on mission with Jesus. And Lord, we bow before you this morning in this place. We ask you to teach us by your spirit, open our eyes to the truth about Jesus and be glorified in us today. Lord, we ask all of these things in the great name of our King, Jesus all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. This morning, we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study on the gospel of Mark. I want to remind you that at this point in the life of Christ, Jesus is just a couple days from being arrested and crucified. What we saw in our study last week is that Jesus went to the temple where he turned over the tables and chairs and he condemned the corrupt religious system that was present in Israel. And the next day, he heads back to the temple where he's confronted by those same religious leaders. And what we saw in our text is that they begin to question him about what authority he had to come into the temple and basically take over the temple and condemn them and their way of doing things. And we saw this. They didn't really care about the answer to that question. They'd already made up their minds about Jesus. What they were hoping is that they would cause Jesus to say something publicly that would turn the crowds against them. And we know that Jesus didn't fall into their trap. And it seems for a minute that he's not going to answer their question about where he got his authority. But we stopped in the middle of the conversation because this morning we're going to continue the conversation he has with those religious leaders. And what we'll see is that Jesus tells a story, a parable. And in this story, he answers the question. He tells them where he got his authority and how it is that he had the right to enter that temple and turn their lives upside down and how he has the right to enter our lives and turn it upside down as well. And so this morning, we're going to see that those religious leaders, and hopefully us in turn, get the message loud and clear. But my prayer is that we respond dramatically different to the message of Jesus than the religious leaders. So let's dig into this text a little bit at a time. And I'm actually going to start by reading the first and the last verse of our passage for study. Mark chapter 12, verse 1 says, And he began to speak Now notice this word, to them in parables. And they, verse 12 says, after hearing his story, they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. 
So they left him and went away. Okay, this passage begins and ends with a whole bunch of thems and theys. Matter of fact, the whole point of the story Jesus tells, verse 12 says, is about, quote, them. And that begs the question, who are they? Right? Who are they? Normally, I would just say the religious leaders. But because these people are so pivotal in the final week of Jesus' life, I, I want to really dig in and answer that question. Who were they? Who are they? In this text and really throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark. Go back just a couple of verses to last week's text. Mark chapter 11, verse 27 and 28 says this. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Okay, so did you notice who they were there? They are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. But that's only part of, quote, them. Mark chapter 12, verse 13, the verse right after our text says this. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Okay, so here, they include the Pharisees and the Herodians. But wait, there's more. Mark chapter 12, verse 18 says, The Sadducees came to him, who say there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question. So now you have the Sadducees showing up. So in the verses surrounding our text, there are actually six different groups of people who all together form them. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. And now that I've cleared all of that up for you, let's move on. I'm sure that some of us actually need a little bit of digging down. Who are those six groups of people? If we'd lived in first century Israel, we would know right off the bat who those groups were, but we don't live then. So let me just slow down for just a moment and give you a quick explanation of these six groups that form the one big group opposed to Jesus, starting with the chief priests. Okay, so God instituted the priesthood in Israel when they left Egypt during the Exodus. And the priests were the leaders of the worship and sacrifices that took place at the temple. When you look at the Old Testament, you find that the Old Testament law provided for a man who was called the high priest or the chief priest to give leadership to the priesthood. He's also the one who would, who would sacrifice and, and, and offer the ceremonies and lead the ceremonies on the day of atonement on behalf of the entire nation of Israel every single year. We talked about him entering that holy of holies in the temple uh, when we talked last week about the temple. And so the, the chief priest or the high priest was the priest who led all of the priests that God had instituted for worship and sacrifice at his temple. But here's what we find happening by the time that Jesus arrives on the scene. By the time Jesus arrives, there's a whole group of people who are calling themselves chief priests, not just one. And they're being led by the guy they call the high priest. And what that tells us, and here's what you need to know, is that over time, the priesthood had changed from what God had originally instituted in his law. They'd expanded and gone even beyond what God had said. And the biggest actual change in the priesthood was that most of them were corrupt. You can read in Malachi chapter 2, which is the last book in the Old Testament, a vivid rebuke of the priesthood in Israel. That's the chief 
priests, this group of leaders of priests who are corrupt and have left the way of God. The scribes were highly educated men who had made it their life's work to be experts in the Old Testament scriptures, also known as the law and the prophets. They were the one that God used to preserve his word in the Old Testament because they were the ones who painstakingly copied the text of scripture over and over and over again. But they weren't just old-fashioned copy machines. They were experts on the law of God. They would be called on to settle disputes about different interpretations of God's word. Essentially, these people were the, the, the lawyers slash Bible scholar of ancient Israel. And like the, the priests, the scribes were also largely corrupt. In Matthew 23, you can go there in your own time, you'll find that Jesus brings a scathing list of condemnation against the scribes. And that brings us to the elders, okay? To be an elder in Israel meant that you were recognized as a wise and influential leader in your sphere of influence in Israel. Elders were called on to settle disputes between uh, different issues or conflicts between different parties or individuals. And every layer of culture in Israel had a council of elders. What I mean by that is every city had a council of elders. The priests had their own council of elders. Even the king had a council of elders. All the way to the point that the whole nation had a council of elders. You see, the highest, most powerful group of elders in the nation was a group known as the Sanhedrin. You've probably heard that term. The Sanhedrin were uh, the men who comprised the ruling body and the high court of Israel. At the time of Christ, they were made up of 70 elders, influential men, who were led by the high priest. And although they were patterned after the 70 elders that Moses had instituted during his time of leadership, this was not a position that was prescribed by the law of God. This was something that became tradition and expanded so that over time... This group of men, the Sanhedrin, the council of elders over Israel, they gained more and more power until they finally saw themselves as the highest authority in Israel. Can you imagine a government agency assuming power beyond its constitutional rights? I mean, that must have been a nightmare. I can't imagine living in a country like that. In many ways, really, the Sanhedrin, though, was the supreme court of Israel. They had jurisdiction over religious, civil, and criminal issues. And like the scribes and the priests, they were corrupt. And that's actually because the members of the Sanhedrin were largely the corrupt priests and scribes as well as the elders. So when Mark says in chapter 11 that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders confronted Jesus, what he's referring to is actually the Sanhedrin or the members of the Supreme Court of Israel. And so in, a, in an informal way, Jesus is sort of standing in front of the high court of Israel. He's already being put on trial at this point in this final week of life. But that kind of begs that next question. What about those three other groups that are mentioned in the rest of the text? 
What role do they play? The Pharisees, Herodians, and Sadducees. Well, they were kind of like political parties. They were kind of like the Democrats, Republicans, and Libertarians of our country. They make up political parties, but they're also sort of like religious denominations as well because they all held religious belief and influence. The Pharisees, you probably heard that term before, they were mostly middle-class men who were leaders in their local synagogues and communities throughout Israel. They held the most sway over the common people of all of the political slash religious parties of these three. The name Pharisee comes from the Hebrew word for separated. And that's kind of how they saw themselves. Originally, they saw themselves separated to God away from the rest of the people because they were holy. But by the time Jesus shows up, they see themselves as so holy, they're basically just a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites. But since they were like a political party, some of the priests and some of the members of the Sanhedrin were Pharisees. They were a minority group, but they were kind of like a, a, a Republican or a, 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 a political party in this priesthood or the Sanhedrin. And they had several different distinct doctrines that are important to know. They believe God is in control, but the choices of people affect the course of history. They believe there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. They believe in an afterlife where people will be punished or rewarded. They believe the Messiah will set up his kingdom on earth. They believe the spiritual realm is real, including angels and demons. And so they believed a lot of really good biblical truth. Their problem wasn't their heads. Their problem was their hearts. They were corrupt because they didn't believe that they were deeply in need of grace. So while they knew a lot of Bible truth... They missed the whole point of the Bible, that they needed a redeemer, a savior. That's why they rejected Jesus. That's the Pharisees. The other political party is the Herodians. They were a group of leaders that were more concerned with political power than with religious purity. Their name comes from their support of the Herods, who was a series of kings, King Herod, who had been appointed by the Roman Empire to oversee Israel and the Herodians, the supporters of the Roman King Herod, were hated by the Pharisees because the Pharisees are purists. They believe that Messiah is going to come and set up a kingdom and overthrow all of the ungodly kingdoms of the earth, including the Roman Empire. And so they hate the Herodians because the Herodians, in their mind, are sellouts and they're not purists and they don't keep the scriptures. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians hate each other. Even as they serve on the same political system of the Sanhedrin, they're opposed and at gridlock. Can you imagine a government authority being opposed and gridlocked with one another because of political partnership? Crazy stuff. It's almost like history repeats itself. Anyhow, you have this final group called the Sadducees. Now, this group, unlike the Pharisees, who were kind of middle class guys, these people are mostly affluent men. They're kind of like the aristocracy in Israel. They serve on high-ranking positions of authority. As a matter of fact, most of the priests and the members of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees, and they differed quite a lot from the Pharisees in their doctrine. For instance, they had the exact opposite views on the ones that I just showed you about the Pharisees. They believe that God is largely uninvolved in our lives. They didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in an afterlife. So they didn't believe in punishment or eternal reward. They didn't believe in a spiritual realm or angels or demons. They didn't believe anything beyond life here on earth. They didn't believe there would be a heaven. That's why they were sad, you see? See, that's an old old trick. You see what I did there? Yeah, yeah. 
pretty good. <laughs> Welcome to seminary, kids. That's how it's done. Here's the reality, though. While they were opposed to the teaching of the Pharisees, and they fought like cats and dogs, just like the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Pharisees held more official or the Sadducees held more official power, but the Pharisees held a lot of sway with the people. And so the Sadducees, even though there were more of them on the Sanhedrin, they had to, they had to compromise with the Pharisees an awful lot because they feared the people and the influence the Pharisees had. Okay, So those groups are the ones that Jesus is talking about and dealing with and standing in front of here in our story. And in the verses following, he interacts with all of them over and over and over again. So it's good to keep those things in mind. He's talking about the members of the three political parties of Israel, Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, and the various leadership roles in Israel that are occupied by those political parties, priests, lawyers, or scribes, and elders. That is who our story is about. Now, one of the reasons I would go through that background, not just because it's going to be really important in the rest of the gospel of Mark, is because you need to know that group represents the entire nation of Israel. From commoners to the affluent, from conservatives to liberals, from traditionalists to progressive, in a sense, the entire nation of Israel is represented by this group of people. And they are bitterly opposed to one another until they become galvanized by something that threatens their way of life. You know what that something is? Jesus. Only one thing brought those people together, and it was Jesus and their opposition to him. And now keep that in mind and look at the parable Jesus tells. Mark chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to its ten- leased it to tenants and went into another country. Okay, before I tell you something about this verse, I just want to tell you this. Life is like a box of chocolates. <laughs> Did you know that? Hey, do you know where that's from? Forrest Gump, right? If you were an adult or close to an adult in the 90s, you would have probably known that that came from Forrest Gump without me ever telling you. Now, here's the point. I love Forrest Gump and I work in every... No, I'm kidding. The point is this. Jesus starts this parable by making a kind of reference that's similar to that. It's one that all of these Jewish leaders would have known without him having to say anything to explain it. He's referring to Isaiah chapter 5 where the word of God came to the people of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. And then in that prophecy, it compared Israel to a vineyard that belonged to God. And Jesus is wording his first line in this parable very similarly to that story and prophecy in Isaiah chapter 5. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's making it clear that God is the owner of the vineyard. That's what that cultural spiritual reference would have been about. So who is the owner of the vineyard? God. All right, keep that in mind. Let's keep going. Verses two through five. When the season came, he, the owner of the vineyard, God, sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Okay, stop right there. Jesus continues the story by saying the tenants beat and killed some of the owner's messengers, okay? So since the vineyard is Israel and God is the owner, who would the messengers be that he sent to them 
that they're beaten killed. Did you guys say it? It's the prophets who brought God's word to his people. Listen to Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. The Jews, Jesus says, rejected the prophets of God. Keep that in mind. Keep moving forward. Verses 6 through 8. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. You guys ready to be Bible scholars for a minute? All right, let me let you in on something. Jesus continues this story by saying the owner of the vineyard, who is? Sends a beloved son to the vineyard that is Israel. Now, scholars, let me ask you this. You got one chance. Who can you guess is the son of the vineyard owner? What's his name? Jesus, Jesus, right? Jesus is the son of the... Do you see what he's doing here? He's making it unmistakably clear that he is the son of God. Even more specifically, do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's answering the question that the religious leaders that represent all of Israel asked him, where do you get your authority? And he says... I have the authority of God himself because I am the son of God. I'm God in the flesh. So Jesus is establishing unmistakably his authority. Now, we're almost to the point of the parable. Verse 9, look at it. He asked this question in light of who he is. God in the flesh, the son of God, come with the authority of God himself. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. You see, Jesus is saying, he says, what do you think God is going to do to those who reject his authority by rejecting his son? And then he doesn't even give them a chance to answer. He doesn't hardly give them a chance to draw breath. He just tells them. He says, God will destroy them and give their place to others who don't reject the authority of God and his son. And that's the point of the parable. And it gives us the big idea for this morning. Those who reject the authority of God will be rejected by the God of all authority. Those who reject the authority of God will be rejected by the God of all authority. Guys, see what is happening here. Jesus is standing face to face with the highest human authorities in the nation of Israel. They represent every single facet and strata of life in that nation. These are the men who represent the facets of Jewish society that comprise this whole nation from religion to politics and everything in between. And he doesn't mince words. He says, because they had rejected the authority of God, they were being rejected by God who's opening the door for others. To take their place as his people. Listen to the way that John says it in his gospel. John chapter 1 verses 10 through 12. He, meaning Jesus, was in the world. And the world was made through him. You know why? Because he's God. Yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own. Meaning the Jews. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become 
the children of God. We'll revisit that last part that he has made a way for anyone, Jew or Gentile, to be a child of God by receiving him. But notice what this verse is saying. Jesus was born into the nation of Israel. He lived among the people of God those that had been chosen by God from all the people of earth to experience his blessing in a very unique way. During his ministry, Jesus preached throughout Israel. He displayed his miraculous power there. Yet every political party, every layer of government, every organized religious group, every facet of culture rejected him outright. Now listen, we know that God has a plan for the nation of Israel. Before Jesus comes again, there will be a gathering of that nation back to himself, the Bible tells us. But during the life of Jesus, that nation, Israel, rejected God's authority. And as a result, what did they suffer? The rejection from God himself. In 70 AD, we talked about it, the evil man, Emperor Titus. And for those of you who are visiting, my name's Titus, and so that's the inside joke. The evil Titus comes and he levels the city of Jerusalem and the temple and the people of Israel are scattered for almost 2,000 years without even being a nation on the earth. And even though the primary audience, guys, is the nation of Israel, and Jesus' parable is about the nation of Israel and their leaders, the ones that are standing right in front of him, we need to hear this. Because history's proven the truth of Christ's words. We've seen it take place in Israel, and it's undeniable in human history. They rejected the authority of God, and they were rejected by the God of authority. And the message of Jesus is just as true for us today as it was 2,000 years ago. Those who reject the authority of God will be rejected by the God of all authority. Listen to what Romans chapter 11 says. Verse 21, Paul is talking about God's judgment on the nation of Israel, this exact dynamic. Verse 21, he says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, referring to that olive tree, that fig tree we talked about last week, the natural branches, meaning Israel, neither will he spare you. Do you hear what the Bible's saying? This is a warning. And yeah, it's a warning to our nation. A warning that our nation needs to hear. America has rejected God. We live in a post-Christian nation, and this should be a sobering thought for the people of this nation. But this is also a warning to us. The people sitting right here in this room, one who's hearing this message come out of my mouth, the, the, the reality is this. The scripture is saying, you and I aren't the exception to the rule of God. Those who reject the authority of God will be rejected by the God of authority. And that is a sobering thought, or it should be for all of our lives. And what I want to do in the remainder of our time is I want to consider two ways that Jesus says the leaders of Israel rejected the authority of God. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will help us take inventory in our lives to see that we can be like the hard-hearted religious leaders of Israel, and may we not be like them. May we bow before the authority of God in our lives. That's my prayer. So how did they reject the authority of God first? They rejected the authority of God's word. Go back to verses two through five again. 
said, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they killed, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. We already saw that these verses are a reference to the prophets of God. The prophets were sent by God to deliver his word to his people. And something you need to know is that office, in a sense, was extended through the lives of Christ's apostles. The New Testament apostles were the ones that God used to bring his word to the church. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. It says, So then you, speaking about Gentiles, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We'll get back to Jesus as the cornerstone in just a few minutes, but now I want you to see that the apostles and prophets who delivered the word of God to us laid a foundation of truth upon which our entire faith is built. And what that means is when we reject the word of the apostles and the prophets, the Holy Bible, we are rejecting the authority of God in our lives. And so the question for us this morning is this. What role does the Bible, the word of God, play in your day-to-day life? Honestly and in reality, I want you to ask, how are you making the decisions you make every day? Because you are either submitting your life to the authority of God's word or Jesus says you are rejecting the authority of God himself. So so how do you determine the way you live and the decisions you make? How do you decide, decide the way that you'll relate to your spouse or the way that you'll raise your children? How are you deciding the way that you'll spend your money? How are you deciding the way that you'll make your plans and pursue your dreams? Is your life lived according to the word of God or the spirit of this age? Don't make the assumption. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Are you hearing the voice of God And his spirits say in his word, this is the way, walk you in it. Or are you rejecting the authority of God in your life? Is there any part of your life you know today is not in alignment with what God says in his word? What would need to change for you to say, I am yielding to what God says? Because Jesus is clear. Those who reject the word of God reject the authority of God. And those who reject the authority of God will be rejected by the God of all authority. Are you living? A life that's filled and in alignment with the word of God delivered by the prophets and the apostles. Number two, they rejected not only the authority of God's word, they rejected the authority of God's son. Look again at verses six and eight. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Stop right there. You see, the tenants had two options. They would either recognize the son as the rightful owner of everything, or they would reject him in an effort to take control of everything. And there's no middle ground. What do you say about the son, and how do you respond to the son? 
What Jesus is showing us is that as he progresses from all of these messengers who had a message to the one and only son, the culmination of God's authority on this earth and in our lives is embodied in the person of Jesus. And there is no, there is no middle ground on Jesus. He is not just a prophet, a good example of humanity. He's not just a gifted teacher or an influential leader. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And you either submit your life to him or you reject the authority of God. As a matter of fact, you can't even submit to the word of God without submitting to Jesus as the son of God because the entire Bible is about Jesus the son of God. He's the cornerstone of everything that God is doing in the world. That means that we submit to the authority of God by ultimately just bowing our lives down before Jesus and saying, Jesus, you're my king. My life and everything I have belong to you and not me. And so let me just ask you, do you believe that Jesus Christ is your king? And is in control of your life today. And maybe a better way to ask that question is this. Do you live like you believe Jesus is your king? Does your life look like you live as though Jesus is in control and not you? What do you need to lay down before the Lord today? Your kids, your marriage, your job, your future, your past, your finances. Guys, we bow before the authority of God by submitting our whole life to the authority of Jesus Christ, our King and Lord, who's the Son of God, the Word made flesh. The way that we live receiving the authority of God is by bowing before Jesus as Lord. Here's how I want to close with just a couple of minutes. I want to show you one more thing that Jesus says that I trust and I pray will be a catalyst for you to bow before the authority of God. Look at the last thing Jesus says in verses 10 and 11 of this story. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. That's actually a quote from Psalm 118. And if you've been paying attention over the last couple of weeks, you'll remember that when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, the crowds were crying out quotes from Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us, save us now. Those are quotes from Psalm 118. And Jesus pulls out of that Psalm and makes this quote. That the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. What's he saying? He's saying that even though those fickle crowds turned on him and rejected him, even though the people of Israel from top to bottom wholesale had almost all rejected the authority of God, they couldn't overthrow the authority of God. Yes, they would crucify Jesus. But that didn't derail God's plan. It actually accomplished God's plan. Because the stone that was rejected had been set aside by God to be the cornerstone. 
He's the foundation of everything God is doing in the world today. Namely, he's providing a way for people like you and me who have rebelled against his authority to be forgiven and restored to him by his grace. In rebellion, we as people crucified Jesus, but the death of Jesus was the very way God was accomplishing his plan to provide forgiveness of our sin and restoration with God. Because we read this earlier, as many as receive Jesus to those he he gives the right to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. Guys, if you've rejected the authority of God, and let me just let you in on this. You all have rejected the authority of God. All of us have sinned against God. You're like me. You've already blown it. Whether you know it or not, you have sinned against a holy God. But hear the good news. Our sin isn't greater than God's sovereign grace. You know how he chooses to use his authority over heaven and earth? He chooses to save and rescue and restore and bless anyone and everyone who will bow before Jesus as Lord. He doesn't just reject those who reject his authority. He receives anyone, Jew or Gentile, old or young, rich or poor, any walk or phase of life. He receives anyone who receives his son, Jesus. And then he uses his power and authority to pour out grace and mercy and blessing on us as his children. And here's what that means, guys. It means when you surrender your life and submit to the authority of God, you aren't losing anything. That surrender, that submission, it isn't losing anything. It's gaining everything God has to give. Let me say it this way. You're joining the side of a God who cannot lose and gives victory to his people. Last week, I went to uh, my kid's soccer game in Orlando. It was pretty cool. Uh, Both teams showed up. We'd driven an hour to be there to get to Orlando. Uh, Everybody was there on the field except the referees. The referees didn't show up. See, the other team is the home team. They were responsible for uh, providing the officials for the game. And you couldn't have an official game without the officials, we learned. But apparently there was some kind of miscommunication and the officials never showed up. Here's what that meant. It meant that team that was responsible for the referees, they actually had to forfeit the game and give the win to our team. But since both teams had traveled to get there, they decided let's go ahead and have the game even though our team had already been given the win. Can I tell you something? It's the best game of the year. (laughs) Best game of the year. And I don't just mean because we had the win. I'm saying our kids played better than they had played all year long. They weren't anxious. They weren't fearful. They weren't timid. They played like a bunch of pros. Nearly every kid on our team scored a goal. And I hope the other team's not listening. They got destroyed by our team. It was awesome. It was an absolute blast to watch our kids play that well and have so much fun and joy in the middle of the game. You know what made all the difference? They knew they couldn't lose no matter what. It's amazing how you play when you know you can't lose no matter what. Before the game ever started, you know what? They were already on the winning side. And that's what happens 
When you submit to the authority of God by bowing before King Jesus, you join the winning side. Your surrender becomes victory. You become part of the team that cannot lose no matter what. You know why? Because Jesus has already won the victory at his cross and in the empty tomb. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He will establish his kingdom and no one on earth will stop him. Our nation and the rest of the nations of this world may reject the authority of God, but here's the good news, church. That cannot stop the God of all authority. He's using his sovereign power to pour out grace and blessing on everyone who bows before him. He is the stone rejected by men, but that rejection didn't stop him from building a foundation that will last forever. He's the cornerstone. So here's the word of God for you today. Join the winning side. Bow before Jesus Christ as Lord And enjoy the ride. He will not lose no matter what. And in him, you will have the victory. Would you bow your heads in prayer? Father, we ask that you would work in our hearts today. To see Jesus for who he is. Bow before him as Lord. Lord, I pray your spirit would even now begin revealing places in our hearts. Places where we are hesitant to yield to Christ. Places where we say, Jesus, you can do whatever you want. Just don't do anything here. Don't change this. God, I pray that this morning you would, by your grace, you'd cause us to bow before Jesus and say, Jesus, here's my whole life. All that I am and all that I have belongs to you. Do whatever you want to do. And I pray we would trust in Christ. That he provides forgiveness and restoration to people who've blown it. People who've rebelled in their sin. Lord, I pray that we would trust in Jesus in this day. And Lord, give us joy at knowing that the biggest possible picture isn't that any nation or group of people rejected Jesus. It's that the opposition of this world won't stop him. That victory is secured already in Christ and our future is glorious in him. And help us to enjoy the victory of Christ. We love you, praise you, and we thank you for your work in us through Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.